this, our latest episode of the School of Meta podcast. Today I'm delighted to share an interview with Colin Bevan. Colin is a writer and an internet blogger whose work first hit my radar um, when I watched the film No Impact Man that was made in 2009. And No Impact Man is a film about having zero impact on the environment that Colin made whilst living in the city, in, in New York City. And I highly recommend it um, to, to viewers as a, as a really kind of provoking and interesting personal response to the world we live in. Um, I interviewed Colin a few weeks ago, and today is actually the 1st of July. And um, since the interview, a whole host of things have happened to me personally and in a kind of more international sphere. I, um, I personally have been to the Gross National Happiness Conference in Stroud, organised by the Bhutanese Gross National Happiness Centre, which was a conference dedicated to thinking about how groups and individuals globally could contribute to GNH, Gross National Happiness, as a complement or antidote to the current focus on gross domestic product. So it was a real genuine alternative paradigm on how we look at the world and how we work in the world. And on the Friday morning of the conference, I was due to head off to Glastonbury Music Festival, but woke up to the news that we had exited the European Union and so the festival took on a very different dimension and uh, um, I decided that I would bury my head in the mud and ignore for a few days what was going on but I couldn't really ignore it for that long and in every conversation that you have a festival like that is quite political and quite optimistic at times um, and, and you know about coordinating a response to show that we that we are still a compassionate society in the United Kingdom, but also that that there are alternatives to to how we think and 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 I hope often or my wish has been that this podcast might provide people with some ideas and some questions that might support their practice and might help them realize the amazing and wonderful work that they're doing in their systems, within their structures, be that a, a school or a, or even another institution. So then I sort of questioned, you know, well, here we have this interview with Colin and in the current climate, I want this to be as relevant and useful to folk as it can be. And um, I think that really why I'm sharing that is because I think this conversation starts, these transformations that we seek 
start with us as individuals, that we have to kind of equip ourselves with a better better adventurer's kit um, for the journey we're about to undertake. And that, for me, is a question of of sort of growing our ethical framework and having a deeper understanding of the of the things that we that we want to achieve on an individual level so that we can then contribute to the collective and beyond. So it's for those reasons that I think actually Colin's insights and, and comments are of profound value um, at this moment in my life and I hope in yours too. So without further ado, here's here's the conversation that Colin and I I recorded. In preparation for this, we sort of pinged a few questions and thoughts. And one of these topics that comes up a lot to us is this notion of spirituality and what it means and how we can use it in our kind of secular worlds. And I wondered if you couldn't sort of unpack your perspective a bit on, on that. Sure. I mean, in some ways, the word spirituality segregates a way of thinking away from the rest of life in a way that is not actually true. That is to say, um, to say that there's this part of life and then there's spirituality, um, I don't believe is actually true. I think at the, at the root um, is Many of us have questions about how to live, or um, the title of my book, How to Be Alive. Um, and spirituality actually basically brings together a bunch of thinking and a bunch of techniques that allow people to investigate that question. How do, how do I live? How do I be alive? Or, 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 or to put it another way, what is my authentic relationship to the world. Um, and so broadly speaking, um, for, for myself, spirituality is, is just that. It's, 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 it's that part of the human conversation which asks, what is my relationship to the world, to the universe, to the ether, um, to a supreme, supreme being, if you believe in that? Um, but most importantly, how does all of that manifest in my day-to-day -day relationship with my fellow person and with the rest of creation? So that's, to me, what spirituality it does. In other words, it doesn't necessarily have, there doesn't, doesn't necessarily have to be a God or a universal consciousness or anything like that um, attached to it. It's just this big question of how do I live in relation to you? Yeah, that's, that's, that's a, a brilliant unpacking. And, and I'm going to pick up on a word that you used, which is kind of this authentic experience of living. Because I, I think from a, from a teaching point of view and from a parenting point of view, that can be quite hard to do when we're sort of so immersed in these synthetic experiences. My, my son is a sort of avid Minecraft player. And it frustrates me to sort of see him do that when I think that's a synthetic experience, not an authentic one. I want you to be using bricks or I don't know what, you know, in the mud somewhere. And I think in, in our urban, quite fast paced living, there seems to be a kind of dissonance between our authentic, the, 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 the kind of search for it like authentic living and this kind of fairly 
synthetic digital lifestyle that we're well <laughs> we're using to speak to each other with now, I suppose. And um, does it mean then when you when you're looking for how you relate to the world that you're going to have to to kind of give some of that up? Is that is that what you kind of propose? Let me let me let me say a little bit about what I mean by by the word authentic because the I mean it's a it's a word that it's somewhat of a charged word and um, one that we use in different ways. But when I use the word authentic, I mean it in the way that a that a humanist psychologist would mean, which basically suggests that. Um, a humanist psychologist, um, you know, somebody like Fritz Perls or Carl Rogers or Carl Jung or Eric Fromm, these psychologists believe that um, basically human beings have uh, a whole, an organism, and um, that that organism is full of potenti potentialities and talents and views, and that um, as we grow up and move through life, we shut down parts of that organism and instead obey the rules of society. And so, um, and it, when I say the rules of society, it could be the rules of our parents' household or the rules of our romantic partnership. But basically what happens is we stop referencing our innermost selves um, and the organism, which is us, um, when choosing our behaviors, but instead put the locus of evaluation outside of, outside of ourselves onto the, the, the rules that we've perceived that we must obey in order to survive. Yeah. So for me, authentic functioning means when you refer, when a person has come to the place where they refer inwards to themselves um, in choosing their behavior. It doesn't mean that you don't account for the rules of society. It means that you actively choose when are the times to obey the rules and when are the times to disobey or, or, uh, or adapt the rules. And so authentic functioning um, means that when we, uh, when we function authentically, it means that we're actually able to act from the full palette of potential behaviors um, in relation to what's going on be around us and therefore able to choose the most appropriate and uh, productive behaviors. But it also means, which I think is vastly important, that a person who has become authentic is also awake to their compassion and to their, let's call it big love, not, not, not just romantic love, but love for creation itself. So a truly authentic person who's not just following the dictates of the world is also in touch with those elements that we most need in those times, in these times, which is, which is, which is, which is a, a true and deep caring uh, for each other in the world. Wow, that's, that's brilliantly put. It, it kind of resonates with me. I, I'm sort of hearing that kind of post-conventional morality stuff the Lawrence is it Lawrence Kohlberg or Lawrence Kohlberg's work on you know looking beyond our our kind of observing rules because they fit you know and actually selecting I, I'm wondering if that's not and, and I kind of my it's a slightly hackneyed question but it it can be quite a hard thing to do that surely oh yeah. <laughs> it's 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 hugely hard yeah. um in the sense 
let's say maybe take away the word hard and call it challenging. Yeah. I mean, I think that, again, the humanist psychologists that I'm referring to in many ways believe that it's the purpose of life, that, that to integrate the fullness of ourselves into consciousness, to have access to the fullness of our potentialities, the full palette of our behaviors, to actually be able to choose our behavior, our own actions consciously rather than be ruled by unconsciousness um, and, um, and, and, and what we perceive as the mores of society. Um, yeah, this is a, it's a lifelong process. And, and it's, by the way, um, the opposite of most educational processes. Right. Uh, the, the way that I have come to understand um, state education, at least in the United States, is that um, it was a place to put the children while the factory workers were at work and a place to teach the children to um, turn themselves off while they learn to take undertake boring, repetitive tasks. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that um, what is not part of education, uh, what, I mean, I'm, I'm generalizing, but what is not typically part of education is um, the ability to self-reference. We aren't taught to self-reference in education. Um, and in some spiritual circles, we are like not not what, that what I'll call the Gnostic disciplines, uh, uh, Christian mysticism, uh, uh, and Christian contemplative practice, uh, Buddhist meditation practice. Those are all self-reflexive um, ways of being. So some religions are also shoving dogma down our uh, some 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 practices shove dogma down our our throats and also turn turn us off. But but but. Um, yeah. So yes, it's hard, especially in a society where it's the opposite of what we are trained to do. Yeah. And I, 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 when you mentioned that about education, I think that one of the things that's, that's terribly difficult is when you are a teacher within that system and you are kind of aware of its limitations, that you're, you're confronted with this sort of quite difficult choice that you either somehow complicit in what's happening in this kind of shutting down of capacity or you choose to to stop and that's you know I think that probably could apply to a, 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 you know an array of different professions but but we're interested in, in thinking about how how we can sort of nurture these invisible leaders you know what, what can and, and I'm and I'm interested to hear your perspective on that because because again it would be very hard to actualize in this way in, in a system which which is acquiring you or you know requiring you to to do exactly the opposite if that makes sense right so i i i should say that um personally i i often say this i i think that the the teachers and the farmers of this world are are are, are modern day saints yeah. <laughs> and and um I would love to reverse the pay structure so the investment bankers got a teacher's pay and a teacher got an investment banker's pay and the same for farmers too. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and artists, uh, you know, artists who choose to be our modern day priests are, are also um, heroes. So, so I want to say that and I won't pretend to be able to say that I know what teachers should do. Yeah. Um, but what I will say is that any of us that seek to be leaders, um, and of this world that we live in, 
have, I think, have a responsibility to do for ourselves what it takes to actually begin to uh, come to a place where we're functioning more and more authentically. Yeah. Um, so um, that the teacher themselves are um, finding ways to bring into consciousness all of their potentialities so that even though they may be following the rules of the educational system, they know that they're following the rules and choosing to follow the rules and making explicit to themselves and perhaps to their students too that there is a choice involved. There are times when it's expedient to follow the rules and times when it's expedient not to, as opposed to just believing for ourselves and teaching others that these are the rules to be followed. Yeah. There's a, there's a, um, I've been reading about different people's definitions of authenticity recently, and I, I mentioned Eric Frum before, and he, he says that um, contrary to other, some other definitions of authenticity, he says that to be authentic does not mean that we never follow the rules of society. It means that we authentically choose to follow them when it's expedient to do what we care about and to, let's say, love in the way that we want to love. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I guess that... I guess that it's a kind of you, you sort of talk about it as the seeking of awareness, you know, that we're, we're consciously making the decision. And I think sometimes it feels sort of subversive to be in the machinery and to be a sort of dissenter and to tell people that I'm consciously following this, even though, you know, and I think that it's that's the juggle, isn't it? That becomes a kind of an ethical choice. And um and I speak to teachers who say the only way to deal with this is to step outside of the system and, and create a new model to try something completely different. Mm. And we do see these pockets of resistance, these little schools that open up with four or five kids and they might be homeschooled and brought together and they're trying to be more democratic and I don't know, all, all the kind of things that we would want to see in schools. And then I see this, I would, yeah, please, sorry. Yeah. Oh, I'm so sorry. I, I was just going to say, I would that argue that the choice of, your style of approach to dealing with the limitations that you see in the system isn't so much an ethical choice as a temperamental choice. Because the reason why I say, so I come, the thinking that I bring to this conversation and to the conversations I have in general arise, well, out of my spiritual practice, but also out of the beginning of this body of work that I've been, been working on, which began with my project, No Impact Man, in which I lived as environmentally as possible for a year and became part of the discourse about what it means to live um, environmentally and, 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 and lots of questions around how any one person can contribute to us living as environmentally as possible. And so one of the questions that there were lots of questions that came up about which was the most valuable approach, which was the most ethical approach in regard to two things. One was to actually stay in um, the urban environment and participate in, in the, with inverted quotes, in the machine and try to change it from the inside or go back to the land and yeah. actually set up, you know, your own farm and your own energy production system, renewable energy production system, um, you know, be the back to the lander. And, you could people could argue 
that one was more ethical than the other. That, you know, one, you couldn't truly not have an environmental footprint unless you returned to the land. Um, that would be one ethical argument. Another ethical argument, though, was how can you help if you've left and gone back to the land, as it were, you're only helping yourself and you're not helping other people. So, so that one could argue the ethics forever and ever. And, and, and I think sometimes what's less important than the, than the approach is the attention, intention behind the approach. So I actually think that a person who, who chooses to be a leader and, and by leader, I mean leader with a small L, what I, you know, lead themselves and the group of people around them, as opposed to being a worldwide leader, a person who choose to be a lead, actually the word I use for these people is what I call life questers. Obviously, a person yeah. who chooses to be a life quester can be both as ethical if they choose to be part of the system as if they choose to withdraw from the system and do something different because if they, they can be equally ethical, the difference between them is more likely temperamental. One, one just operates better and is more effective as part of the system. One operates better and is more effective withdrawing from the system. Right. Colin, I'd like to, um, to go into a bit of detail about this notion of life quester. And, and I would say that um, in the UK, and I don't know whether this applies across Europe, but when, when will your book be made available? Do you know? Yet. Um, so How to Be Alive is available in North America already. Yeah. And I believe that it's available as an ebook yeah. in uh, all the Commonwealth countries now as well. I but not so. as a paper not as a paper version. And I'm not quite sure yet when it will be coming out as a paper version. Well, I went to my local bookshop who are terribly good and they told me I could get it in January. So I'm assuming it's coming through some publishing channel. But if not, then it, it's available by Kindle. But I had a sneaky preview on Amazon.com. And I, and I and the one thing that really kind of stood out for me was this this part on life questing. Could, could you could you um, expand a little bit on what, what you think? Because I noticed there was a sort of definition that you attached to this word. I think right. Um, I wish I had my book in front of me <laughs> and I'd read the definition because I'm kind of proud of it. Teacher test. <laughs> but, 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 but let me let me expand on it a little bit. That, yeah. Um, as a society develops, um, there are groups of people who are kind of pioneers, let's say, of living in that society. And they, if you like, they, they trample down paths um, to the good life. They, they, they're the people who actually find a way to, to live in current circuit, find a way to a good life uh, given the current circumstances of society. So when I was growing up, what my grandfather told me to do was go to the best college that I could, get the best grades that I could, even if I had to go into substantial debt to do that, graduate from college, um, get a job in a corporation where I'd get in the United States, I'm talking about, of course, where I'd get health care and, 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 and retirement benefits, keep working in that corporation, because just by doing so, according to the, 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 the paths of my grandfather's generation, just by doing so, I'd be paying taxes, which would in turn, you know, pay for the social workers and the police force and the, the fire departments and spread the goodness. And by um, using my income to buy things, I would in turn be 
paying to employ people working in factories and keeping the wheels of industry and the economy turning. So just in the very act of doing prosecuting my life, I would be actually being a participant in society and helping the world turn. And that eventually I would get to retire and go on cruises. And that, that was the path that was kind of more or less laid down um, in my grandfather's generation. And, and that, what that path entails is a bunch of what I call standard life approaches. So standard life approaches are the kind of, it's the kind of connect the, connect the dots approach to living, which tells us that given the certain state, the current state of the world in the society we live, if we're lucky and privileged enough to have the opportunities to be able to follow these standard life approaches, we will end up with a good and happy life. Um, but over the last, depending on, you know, your time scale, 20, 30, 40 years, um, the standard life approaches have been breaking, breaking down. So, for example, here in the United States, you might get a good degree from a college and you might go into great debt to get that degree from a university. And yet that's no promise anymore of a good job. Um, you might get a job with a corporation, but because corporations use freelancers now instead of permanent staff, that's no no guarantee of benefits like health care and retirement. So, so these standard life approaches, which were supposed to have led us to the good life, are breaking down. Not to mention the fact that you're also having to work 60 hours a week and don't have time to spend with the people that you love, et cetera, et cetera. So in that regard, standard life approaches are breaking down. But the, in the other regard... Even if you feel that, even if you have been lucky to be to gain success through these standard life approaches, you've connected the dots, and it has actually worked out to you for you as it more often did in the old days. Um, you get to come away from the process feeling as though you've done it at the expense of somebody else and our planetary habitat. That 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 yes, you've gotten ahead, but the result is you're still living in a a society with a gigantic um, uh, income disparity and that climate change is happening in addition to other environmental problems, racial and social injustice are happening. So you don't even get the feeling that you're contributing to society in the way that you used to get. So, so that's all by way of saying that the standard life approaches have broken down. And so what we're left with is being in the state of not having a set of directions that we can follow in life if we want to both take care of ourselves and have the feeling that our lives are helpful and purposeful and meaningful in terms of helping our local and planetary communities, right? So there's no path set down. There's no connect-the-dots approach to having a joyful, service-oriented life at the moment. Um, and so what's left is to be a life quester. Um, and a life quester is basically somebody who has decided to refer inwardly to themselves to be authentic and ask themselves, what are my passions? That is to say, what are the talents that I love to use? What are the circumstances I love to live in that make me happy? And what are my concerns? What do I care about in the world? Who do I want to help? How do I want to help them? And they marry their passions, their authentic passions and their authentic concerns together in order to bushwhack a path forward through life and become the, the new sort of leaders, if you will, uh, questing for uh, 
a good life um, in the changing circumstances of our suffering world. So that's more or less what I what more or less what I call a life quester. And you can find a life quester. Uh, you could find a life quester can be somebody who is started in living in uh, uh, a communal living situation, or who is started or or participating in a new community garden, or somebody who's started in, or participating in a new sort of local currency or a new type of school it, or just basically anybody who's looking for ways to live happily and in service of others in in the world that we now have yeah that that's that's a life quester that's beautiful and actually it's kind of motivated by love not fear in a, in a way isn't it you know it's I think we often we often seek alternatives because we're frightened. We're, we're frightened into making a choice, as you probably know. In, in England, we're about to in Britain, we're about to have this EU referendum about whether or not we want to be with Europe or or, or, or leave and become our own kind of place. And and it's dominated by a culture of of, of fear that you know we're going to make the wrong decision and it's going to have a negative impact rather than choosing those things that are that are motivated by love. Of, of others and, and ourselves. And I, I think that's really important to, to sort of, to bring those, to, to bring love back into the narrative, you know? Um, yeah, I, and, and when I very much agree with you, I think we have to, be, one has to be careful because unfortunately the American company Hallmark yeah. has done, um, which is a greeting cards company, has done, a, a and, and the advertising industry have gone a, done a, uh, a job on the world, word love so that yeah. it feels almost cliched. Yeah. But um, uh, let's say a, a sense of um, love, a big love, which has a sense of openness to it, a sense, an understanding of interdependence, um, an understanding that uh, we are a uh, social species, which means that we are actually evolved to cooperate not to compete that actually we're evolved to cooperate with our group for the survival of the whole of the group so a certain largesse and generosity of spirit which is not which is which is not necessarily necessarily selfless but certainly not selfish yeah yeah and so actually with that kind of attached to the to the conversation about life quester I'm assuming that then, you know, it, you couldn't become a life quester and be exploiting someone else. You know, there's a, in my Zen school, there's a, a interesting story that we tell. Um, uh, well, let me, let me say, let me t take a backwards step. There's, there's a concept in Islam that I like very much. It's the con it's the concept of barakah. It's, it's uh, phonetically spelled. It's B-A-R-A-K-A-H. And barakah is, um, it means the kind of presence of divine spirit in a transaction. Could be a it could be a business transaction. It could be an educational transaction. It could be an uh, interpersonal relationship transaction. But it's a, it's a transaction. And when barakah is present, in a transaction, then all participants in that transaction are blessed by the transaction. So there's some sort of 
divinity in the transaction itself, which is transmitted to all participants. And Berakah uh, can only be present in a transaction if the transaction and the participants in the transaction um, have the intention of doing good by everybody who's part of that transaction. So that is to say you, I am a baker. I want to provide you and your family with good nutrition. Um, You are my customer. You enjoy my bread and want to support uh, my enterprise of making bread for you and the local community. You, I've made the bread with, caring towards you, you pay me for the bread with caring towards me in a transaction like that, there's barakah. And certainly, as you said, no exploitation. Um, But another story I wanted to tell you from my Zen school is, um, you know, in in Buddhism, there's the precepts of do not kill and do not lie. So oftentimes, there's, um, we're faced with the question of how do we obey all the precepts. And then after a student is taught these precepts of don't kill and don't lie, oftentimes they're told the story of a, of a man who's standing at a fork of a, in, the, in, a, in, a, in a path and a rabbit runs by um, and goes down one of the forks. And 30 seconds later, a hunter comes running up and says, which way did the rabbit go? I want to get it. And now you're faced with the choice. If you tell the hunter which fork the rabbit went down, then the hunter will kill the rabbit, and you're breaking the precept of not killing. But if you tell the hunter the wrong path, then you're lying, and you're breaking the precept of not lying. So either way, you're you're kind of done for. <laughs> so um, what this is is a is it's 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 just to explain that um, to say, like when you said about. Um, we can't exploit anybody, that the, the, the spirit of love means that we'll never exploit anyone. Um, unfortunately, life's never that simple. <laughs> and so we have to have, you know, there's always this, that there's no moral absolutism where you can always be sure that no harm is done. But trying to live in a way we, where we are doing more good than harm and weighing that up as we go along, I think is the object of the types of things that we're talking about. Wow, that's, that's, that's beautifully put, Colin. And, you know, Thank you. No, really, because I think, you know, when we watched, as a family, we watched No Impact Man, and we that's when we were first really kind of exposed to your work and your ideas. And, you know, of course, it generated around our kitchen table the, the, the rows about, you know, how far would you take it? You know, how far would we try to? And, and funny enough... We, we, we shared the film with, with um, you know, our sister, my wife's sister and her family. And we came to the conclusion, well, let's try, let, let's, let's try a no-impact week. You know, Let, let's start as we could and see how, what changes we might, you know, tinker with in our lives that would be supported by, by those intentions. And I, like, I very much like the idea of balancing that, you know, that we want to be just, you know, cognizant of the fact that we're doing more good than harm. And I think that's a really important message to to take, actually. Yes, thanks. Um, Yeah, I mean, there's no... We're we're living as human beings in human bodies, and it's hard to live according to any one particular idea. But if we uh, 
this is getting back to the authenticity element. If if we are in touch with the authentic, with authentically in touch with the people that we actually truly are, then this kind of compass point of trying to do more good than harm is is in, is is I think comes naturally to us. The the teachers who who listen to to this podcast of are kind of fairly anarchic bunch, but they 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 probably if they want to find out more or or come and hear you talk or what what what's what have you got in the pipeline and, and where could they find you? So um, of course there are my two most recent books. One is No Impact Man, and then How to Be Alive, and there's also the film No Impact Man, which you can stream. Um, I blog fairly regularly at the at my own on my own blog, which is colinbevan.com. So it's C O L I N B E A V A N dot com. Um, and of course, I'm I'm at on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, all at Colin Bevan. Um, and so those are good places to find me. I um, if you do go to my webpage, there's um, an opportunity to, to sign up for my newsletter, which I put out about once a week and then um every so often i run um an online course uh where we talk and learn as a group about the types of issues that we've been talking about during this podcast and the way to keep abreast of the the possibility of one of those courses is just to um just to sign up for the email list so thanks once again for listening to the school of meta podcast Please don't forget to share us and support us on your Facebook or Twitter feeds. And we look forward to welcoming you back for another episode soon.